Hey folks, thanks for checking out the 21 Gun Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Sullivan. For any information on 21 Gun, head over to 21gun.net. Spell it out, 21gun.net. For all the ways you can listen, there's, I mean, just look at the tabs. It's it's a basic website, shows you where everything is. Um, so go and check it out. I just, so last week we went to the Raleigh Silky Psych. It was awesome. I haven't been on a Silky Psych in a, I think it was a year, I think. The, no, no, no. Last October, I went to the uh, DC Silkies hike. So it's been a little under a year. Um, it felt great. I'm not going to lie to you. It was an awesome time. Uh, Russ Oxley, Jeremy Walton, Molly, they all, they all did a, a fantastic job uh, in Raleigh. And if any of the hikes coming up are even remotely as enjoyable as uh, the Raleigh hike was, I think you're going to have a good time. Speaking of which... Quads. Oh, actually, no. That one just happened yesterday. Chattanooga and Quad Cities was yesterday. Today's the 23rd, and you're probably listening to this on the 24th. So uh, what do we have? September, Jacksonville, North Carolina. I won't be able to go to that one. It's in my neck of the woods, but I will be out in Texas. What? Texas? September 5th, Cedar Falls, Iowa. September 12th, Seattle, Washington, September 12th, Nashville, Tennessee, September 9th. There's a lot in September. All right, let's do this again. September 19th, Minneapolis, Minnesota, September 19th, Norwich, Connecticut, September 19th, Savannah, Georgia, September 19th, Spokane, Washington, (gasps) September 26th, Kansas City, Missouri, September 26th, Baltimore, Maryland, and that brings us into October. I'm not going to go through those because it's just too far down the line. Do you have any... So I, I had a friend that um, I saw, he's a veteran. Uh, I saw him on Facebook just recently and I noticed something was off and I can only assume since I'm talking to veterans that you have seen the same thing happen to, to one of your buddies. And I tried to reach out and, and, and I don't know, I really don't know what to do. Um, as a result, uh, now do I think he's, he's, you know, suicidal. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Um, but there's definitely some sort of substance abuse issue going on there. So, uh, you know, this is unfortunately far too common and and it's getting, I think, uh, isolation issue. It's getting more common. So this Wednesday night, which is, I can't do the math. It's the 26th at 8 PM. We're having our soup sandwich. I think this is our fifth one. Um, but we're going to have some folks come on and talk about substance abuse, recovery, and kind of the process that they went. Now, this isn't going to be preachy. This is just, uh, I'm bringing on two guys. They're going to share their stories, answer some questions. Cause like I, I work in medicine and I don't know the first thing about approaching someone that might have an issue, or even if it's my place to approach, I don't know. So I think it's going to be a good episode. Uh, I will send out the link to that. Just check out the um, 21 gun Facebook page. You should see the live event. We put it on YouTube, but I don't really, I don't, um, advertise that too much. So, uh, that's it. It's all my announcements for this week. Greg Gonthier. He is a former air force captain. He's a Mustang. So he went through the enlisted ranks and then through the, um, uh, officer ranks. Really, really cool story. Air force guy. He was in charge of Norman Schwarzkopf's, uh, personal security detail. I mean, he was in charge of like Delta guys and SEALs. It was just, a, it's not normal for an Air Force guy to be in charge with these, uh, of these type of operators. So really cool story. Um, you know, if you've ever heard the the adage, be best at what you are 
at the duty that you're given and people will notice and good things will come from it. That's what his whole career was. And he actually separated from uh, active duty three times. So he, he really knows about that transition from active duty to the civilian world. So that's really everything. Uh, without further ado, Greg Gonthier. flipping through historical photos and I see Norman Schwarzkopf and this guy standing next to him with the, the cool 80s mustache and a um, car 15. That's right. That's right. I'm like, that guy's cool. I want to find out who he is. So I Google um, Schwarzkopf's security guard or security detail. And then I, your name is the first one that comes up. So I start reading. I'm like, I got to find this guy. So I searched around and found your email. But uh, I want to start off from a quote from your bio, right? So it says, in August 1990, Mr. Gonthier deployed to Saudi Arabia in support of Operation of Desert Storm and Desert Shield, or Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Prior to deployment, General Schwarzkopf directed Mr. Gonthier, at the time, was, were you Captain Gonthier at the time? I was captain, yes. Okay. To handpick the best operators from the most elite uh, military special operations forces to serve as members of the General's PSD. What I love about that is you're an Air Force guy, and you're picking... The guys from all the other, was it all the other services or was it just from Delta? Who was it? Who was it? No, because, uh, you know, Central Command is a joint command, you know, was a joint command at the time. Uh, I decided to go to each service and select operators from each one of the services to compose the team to have uh, a genuinely um, combined joint team. So, and I went to the Army, got some Delta guys, went to uh, the Air Force and got uh, security forces in OSI. And uh, the Navy, I got uh, a couple of uh, SEALs. And from the Marine Corps, I got some uh, Marine MPs, actually. That's great. Air Force pride, man, all the way. Uh, I just yeah, love absolutely. to hear that. See, a lot of people don't realize that the, the yeah. uh, special operations pipeline has the highest attrition rate uh, than even the SEALs by a few percentage points, which is is interesting. Um, and you also have to remember, I guess, you know, the majority of the Air Force is, is support, right? You have a very, very small group that fly that actually uh, are boots on the ground and stuff. So, so I get it. But yeah, uh, if you're ever interested in learning about um, Air Force, and I don't know if OSI falls in the special operations world, but in my book you do because you're doing operations which are special. But if you're ever interested, <laughs> uh, absolutely look them up. Um, before we get ahead of ourselves, you were born in Spain? I was. My dad was in the Navy at the time, and uh, I happened to be uh, on a Navy base, or well, my, my mother did when I was born. So I actually uh, had dual citizenship for a while. And it's funny because uh, we came back to the States when I was about uh, two years old or so. And of course, we never looked in the back, you know, in, in the uh, rearview mirror about my time in Spain until uh, when I was 18 years old, I got a draft notice from the Spanish army drafted me into the <laughs> Spanish army because I still had dual citizenship. Wow. I was a, uh, yeah, I was an NCO in the air force at the time. That's and, funny. uh, you know, did that, so I had to, did that give yeah. you any issues with your, uh, security clearance? Uh, it, well, it did later on. I mean, I had to actually show that I had, uh, denounced my Spanish citizenship, which I did in writing. Okay. Um, so once I denounced my, my Spanish citizenship and no longer had dual citizenship, everything was fine. Um, how, so uh, did, did your dad, was he career up until he retired or? 
Yeah, my dad retired from the Navy, uh, you know, when I was still a child. Okay. Uh, what was his job? He was a CB. Oh, really? Uh, construction, yeah, combat construction battalion. So uh, he was a Korean War vet, you know, that kind of thing. So um, a handyman, like, you know, he still worked construction until the day he died. So I carried that, that, uh, those skill, that skill set throughout his life. Sure. Um, it's not as common anymore to have a family tradition, or at least it's more, uh, it's more unique to have a family tradition of military service. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. do you think, do you think that with the last 20 years of war and more, we're going to see an increase in families getting back into this tradition? Or do you think, you know, guys will experience so much deployment that we'll say, you know what, maybe come up with a different career path. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that, uh, it's probably going to be the, uh, sort of reality in the future that fewer people are going to opt to go into the military. Um, I mean, just look around at, you know, the millennials and um, the post-millennial uh, generation. And uh, I don't think military service is high on their uh, list of priorities. But I will tell you that even today, I still work for the Department of Defense and uh, I work at, at uh, Central Command Headquarters. And I am very impressed with the young men and women who currently serve. You know, those who elect to go into the military now are... Uh, uh, top notch. And, and I'm really impressed with that. So, but I think the numbers are going to get less and less of, of folks who volunteer, which is why obviously they're exploring, they being the, the government's exploring options with artificial intelligence and drones and, you know, robotics and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's too bad. I mean, it's easier to get into college than it is to get into the military. And at first I was like, that doesn't sound right. But then it dawned on me, right? You could be pot smoking. You could be <laughs> 350 pounds and get into any school you want. The The military is looking for, it's the it's the old adage of the best and the brightest. And that's that's kind of where it's at right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and like I said, I'm, I'm really impressed what I what I see in the young folks that are serving today. Um, growing up in Goffstown. Uh, so I, I grew up in New Hampshire back in the 80s. It was very much... <laughs> Um, most of the Massachusetts families were being taxed to hell. All the working class people were losing all their right. money under Dukakis's uh, <laughs> plans and all that stuff. So there was a right. mass exodus to New Hampshire between probably 78 and maybe 85, 86. And I was part mm-hmm. of that, um, which obviously changed. In fact, where we were uh, in New Hampshire, the majority of people had a Boston accent, right? Because everyone had right. just brought that accent up well, there. Well, Southern New Hampshire. Southern New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, it was actually, you know where, where Route 111 is that kind of bisects yeah. the Route right. 111. If you go south of that, it's pretty much just Northern Mass without the taxes. Yes. <laughs> and you go above that and then you're actually in the New Hampshire area. Um, but still, I think it changed the culture. So the culture that I'm thinking of is probably a lot different than the culture that you know of growing up mm-hmm. in, I would assume, the 60s. So what, what was it like to grow up in New Hampshire uh, in those years? Uh, it, it, I loved it. I mean, it was a very uh, a very good experience growing up. It was still very rural. New Hampshire was, uh, I mean, uh, Goffstown is a sort of a rural area. At least it was back then when I was growing up, even though Manchester was uh, uh, close by. Um Manchester's not that big of a city anyway, but uh, Goffstown was still very rural. So for me, it was a, a very uh, pleasant experience in a lot of ways, except that, uh, you know, I, I don't know how it is now. I haven't been back living in New Hampshire for many, many years. But even back then, uh, being a Canadian of Canadian French heritage, um, 
in my little town of Goffstown, we had the the folks who were Canadian French and those that weren't. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit of um, uh, of discrimination. Uh, you could say, oh, yeah, yeah, they called us Canucks. And, uh, you know, we were the uh, sort of the um, the ones that were expected to do the, the uh, manual labor and, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, we experienced some of that. But, uh, um, I mean, other than that, it was it was a very, very pleasant experience. I, I loved New Hampshire. I just can't put up with the winners anymore. Yeah, it's rough. It's rough. Uh yeah, I, I always look back in New Hampshire with fondness. I mean, I, I really enjoyed where I grew up. The the winners, as a kid, the winners were great. You know, as an adult, they're horrible. It dawned on me when I was writing up your questions that when you joined in 76, I mean, Vietnam had only, we were pulling troops out of there in 75. So it was yeah. a, a year ago. And, and as a young person, when you think about 10 years ago, it seems like a long time. But as you get into your 40s, you realize... A decade, even 15 years ago, 20 years, that's not that long ago. So right. so Vietnam was very, very, the, the, the effects it had on society were still felt. In fact, I would say it was just the beginning of, of you know, how we reacted to that post-Vietnam or post um, Vietnam generation. Was it, uh, was it common for high schoolers to consider military? Was it more uh, polarized? You know, how was it? to make that decision in those years versus, you know, maybe someone who joined up after nine 11, where it was more like world war two. Right. right. No, I, it, uh, I saw a lot of, uh, guys in my, my year group, if you will, when I went in who were not there for necessarily patriotic reasons, you know, and I will, I will, I will be uh, the first to admit that I didn't go into the air force because I was a super patriot or, or anything like that. I, I came from a poor family and, uh, my prospects for uh, uh, making much out of my life were not good, uh, so I went into the Air Force for the for the uh, economic reasons. I needed mm-hmm. a job and uh, I needed an education, and there was no way I was going to be able to go to, go to college uh, based on my my family's income. Uh, the only thing I had going for me is kind of a funny story. I was a I was a pretty good hockey player, <laughs> and uh, I had a I had a scholarship to go to Plymouth State. Uh, to play hockey. And uh, one day um, in the summer of 76, a bunch of my friends and I decided to go talk to some military recruiters. I was just going along for the ride. My buddies were, were uh, more interested in, uh, in enlisting and I went with them to the recruiters. It was one of those uh, places in Manchester back then who had all the recruiters in, in one uh, building. And uh, so we went in, we, we were, there were five of us and uh uh, long story short, all my friends talked to the recruiters. Uh, one went in the Marines, two went in the Air Force, one went in the Coast Guard. And uh, so we're, we're getting ready to leave. And the recruiter said, hey, what about you? And I said, well, I'm going to I'm going to play hockey. I'm going to college to play hockey. And he said, well, the Air Force guy goes, well, we got a hockey team in the Air Force. You can come in and play for the Air Force. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. So I was 17 years old at the time. So I was all excited about playing hockey for the Air Force. And uh I went home to tell my dad because I needed my dad's signature because I was only 17 years old. And my dad had been a Navy recruiter for many years. And he said, hey, this guy's lying to you. <laughs> there's there's no way that you're going to be able to go into the Air Force to play hockey. But I talked him into it. He signed the paperwork. And off I go to, uh, to basic training. And about halfway through basic training, um, because I remember I was six years enlisted before I got commissioned, so halfway through basic training, the, uh, they, they bring you in and they sit you down and they're going to talk to you about your job. And so the job counselor says to me, uh, so 
what are you going to do in the Air Force? And I said, I'm going to play hockey. And he kind of he, he looked up over the bridge of his glasses and he says, we don't have an effing hockey team. And I went, oh, okay. So uh, this, that's when I went, you know, went into the security forces because uh, back then if you went in open – open contract that's where you ended up was in security forces or security police back then right um it was it was a good decision for me because i ended up loving uh, what i was doing um i certainly became more patriotic uh you know the longer i you know, went through basic and then the security police academy and, and all of that but um, most of my peers that were that were there were not there for uh patriotic reasons because again vietnam was winding down most of our instructors were uh Vietnam vets and combat vets, you know, especially in the security forces. And so um, uh, it was int- it was an interesting dynamic because not a lot of people wanted to be there. They were there for reasons other than patriotism. Um, so, yeah, that was that's just the way it was back in the back in the 70s and even early 80s. You know, when, when all of that stuff was going on, people weren't there necessarily because they weren't you know, fight for America kind of thing. Sure. I, I guess to some extent I can relate to that because, um, <clears throat> you know, when I was a kid, it was the first Gulf War. And then I got mm-hmm. out of college and I, I went to University of New Hampshire and I had, I was aimless. I was just working in, a, um, I call it a filing cabinet for 20 somethings down downtown Boston. And I was sitting there, you know, getting a beer belly and just not feeling good. And I said, this can't be life for me. So I thought, well, eh, let's go on a little adventure. Now, mind you, this was the summer of 2001. So I got into OCS and then I got out and uh, two weeks, I was home for two weeks and September 11th happened. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I think things are going to change. <clears throat> yeah. uh, your military career seems to fit the old adage. I remember when I, when I went in, um, the... It might have been my commander in officer school. He said, whatever job you get, be the best at what you do. You know, go in there and I don't care if you're the guy who cleans the floor in the gym, be the best floor cleaner in the gym and people will recognize that. And what, you know, then you can put in your, whatever you want to do after that. Uh, It seems like uh, your career seemed to follow that path. So uh, let's, let's talk about your career and how it progressed and how you actually ended up being uh, the security guard for, I would say, the most famous general we've had in the last 40 years, easily. Yeah, so it's very, it's kind of an interesting story. So uh, I was in the security forces for uh, six years, and because I had a, a six-year uh, enlistment. And uh, so in 1976, I enlisted, and uh, obviously four years later, uh, not obviously necessarily, but four years later, I was uh, in Germany at Ramstein Air Base. I had uh, volunteered to be a member of the uh, of the Elite Guard, and, and I don't know if you know what the Elite Guard no, is. No, not but, at all. That's it's a it's yeah, a cool so, name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, each each uh, Air Force command like uh u.s air forces europe u.s air forces pacific whatever they have a uh, what they call the elite guard which is a uh, uh, a unit of security police or security forces now who are handpicked uh to be the um uh the security people at the air force headquarters at in europe or pacific or wherever you happen to be and uh, if you're selected to do that, there's a, there's a very uh, stringent criteria to be selected. And if you're selected for that, then you go for additional training, and uh, then you go, you know, you report to your uh, uh, 
whatever command you're going to. In my case, it was European command, you safe. And uh, then you become the the uh, uh, bodyguard, if you will, for the for the uh, uh, commander in chief of that of that command. Um, you, you provide security for his quarters. You provide security for uh, the, the office where he's in. And uh, basically you become sort of a, a counterterrorist uh, specialist for for the general who's in charge. And so I, I volunteered for uh, the elite guard in, uh, in 1980, was selected and uh, um, served there for uh, just a short time. And uh, OSI, Office of Special Investigations, had a team who... Uh, also was responsible for the security of general officers. And I worked very closely with them. They liked the way I, I did things. And uh, they basically recruited me for, for the Office of Special Investigations, which I jumped on. I was a, I was a staff sergeant five at the time. And uh, I was only 21 years old. So I was, at the time, the youngest um, OSI special agent that the Air Force had ever had. Oh, you, wow. you, have to be, you have to be 21 years old to be an agent. And I had just turned 21. And... Uh, uh, went to the academy and, and all of that. So uh, I, I served uh, for just two years as an as an enlisted special agent, and uh, my enlistment was up. And I decided to get out and and use my uh, college benefits to to uh, go back to school. So um, I had earned a, an associate's degree while I was on active duty. I separated when my enlistment expired. Went back to New Hampshire, and became a police officer in Nashua. And uh, uh, while I was working full-time as a police officer, I went to school part-time, and I, I subsequently earned my bachelor's degree. And in 1985, I uh, graduated from uh, Hawthorne College, which uh, was a small private school in, in Antrim, New Hampshire. It's not even there anymore. Um, once I, I completed my studies, I, re I applied for uh, officer training school, was selected, and I called my old OSI commander and said, hey, I'm coming back in as an officer. Is there any chance I could get back into OSI? And he said, absolutely. We'll flag you. We'll flag your, your application. And uh, when you graduate from OTS, you'll come back as an officer special agent. So um, I, I completed uh, OTS in July of uh, 85 and was commissioned a second lieutenant. And I went back to OSI as, as an officer special agent. And uh, so... My career progressed. I went to uh, different places. I was a detachment commander in, in, at Altus, Oklahoma. Um, I went to language school, uh, learned Arabic. And uh, that was a huge thing for my career because there were very few OSI folks who were trained in Arabic at the time. It's and, perfect uh, time to know Arabic. Yeah, perfect yeah. time. So um, <clears throat> I actually got sent to Turkey as the OSI detachment commander in Turkey. And at the time... Uh, this was back in uh, late 80s, 88 timeframe. Uh, we really didn't have a significant presence, we being the Air Force, and certainly OSI didn't have a significant presence in that part of the world. So even though I was uh, in Turkey physically, uh, my my area of responsibility included, at the time, there were 18 countries in Central Command's uh, AOR. And so uh, I was I, I became the, the commander of the OSI that covered all of those 18 countries. So uh, we would deploy all the time from Turkey and go to Egypt or go to Saudi Arabia or go to, you name it, Oman, Bahrain, wherever. And uh, it was right about that time in 1988, General Schwarzkopf was appointed as Commander-in-Chief of U.S. Central Command. And so one day I was at my office in, in Ankara, Turkey, and I got a, a you know, a coded uh, message saying, 
uh, you need to go to um, Egypt and meet up with this guy, General Schwarzkopf, some new four-star army general, and uh, you're going to provide a you're going to provide security for him while he travels around. So uh, I had a lot of experience traveling around there doing uh, various and sundry things on behalf of the government. And uh, so when they, when they, being Central Command, needed uh, somebody to be in charge of a security detail, I was really, uh, myself and my office were really the only ones uh, from DOD who had any experience doing that in that particular region. So it was actually my headquarters, headquarters OSI, they got a hold of me and said, uh, guess what, you've been selected to be his, uh, the commander of his personal security detail. And at the time, um, you know, I, I didn't understand what all, you know, exactly what that was going to involve and where it would take me and those kinds of things. So uh, I actually deployed shortly thereafter to Cairo, Egypt to, uh, to link up with him. He came in on his uh, 747 that he had and uh, myself and a, and a team of OSI special agents met him in Cairo. And that was his first trip to the CENTCOM area of responsibility. And he was doing his get acquainted tour with all of the uh, um, chiefs of the military services and so forth for the for the uh, that region of the world. You know, and we ended up going from Cairo to uh, Oman and Bahrain and, and pretty much hit all the AOR countries. And we ended up at the end of that particular uh, um, tour, if you will, uh, going on a safari in Kenya, of all things. And so. <laughs> You know, it was, it was that was the first of the many unusual things that I ended up doing uh, in that position. We, you know, we spent a week in Kenya, out in the, uh, you know, out in the, in the, in the. I wouldn't say jungle; it's not really jungle, but the forest, if you will, uh, on safari, and that was just an uh, unbelievable experience. But uh, yeah, so uh, then I ended up leaving him. He went back to Tampa, where Central Command is. I went back to Ankara. And then shortly after that, I got orders saying, yeah, you're going back to Tampa to do this full time for him. So um, that's that's basically how that happened. He liked that I could speak Arabic. Uh, I was a trained linguist, so uh, he liked to go shopping. And so I would barter for him in Arabic with the uh, with the shopkeepers in the uh, in the souks or the marketplaces in, you know, throughout the the uh, Arab world and, you know, buy carpets and buy this and buy that. And, uh, you know, that was a plus uh, for me because I could speak the language and do his translations for him and that sort of thing. So Schwarzkopf at the time, when you first met him, he wasn't the rock star that he became because no one really had heard of him. I think Saddam maybe was at 89, might've been 90 where he initially invaded Kuwait. Yeah. Two uh, August of 90. Yeah. Okay. So, so, I mean, unless you're in the military at the time, you don't really know who the, the commander of CENTCOM is. You don't know, or whatever sure. it is. Yeah. Um, after that, obviously, he became one of the legends, right? You can name only a handful, and I'm sure most civilians can name a handful of of, uh, of generals that have become legendary, like maybe Mattis would be the most recent. Um, I would even argue before him would just be Schwarzkopf, and maybe before him would be Eisenhower, right? There's only so many. You know, MacArthur. Well, you MacArthur. Know, another, another great, you know, so, yeah. Even allies, even Montgomery, you know, they have, they, right. they have this persona that people get to know. So yep. most... And I actually, I would say every single person who listens to the show only knows Schwarzkopf. I mean, it's hard to say his name. Schwarzkopf, the legend. What mm -hmm. was he like as a person? Yeah, well, good question. Because from um, August, I think we deployed um, to Saudi Arabia for the start of Desert Storm around August 10th. So just a few days after uh, uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait. 
we were over there. And uh, so I spent every day and every night with him from uh, from August. Uh, well, actually, I got there in April of 89 uh, to uh, to Central Command. But so I was with him every day during the whole time he was the commander in chief of Central Command because I was in charge of his security details. So when he was awake, I was awake. When he was asleep, I was still awake. Uh, um, but so I get to know him as a person uh, and not just a general officer and a great general officer that he was. So uh, he was um, what I would call a soldier soldier. I mean, he he really sincerely cared about every single soldier, sailor, airman, marine and coast guardsman that worked with him. And, uh, you know, I saw him do some tremendous things on behalf of of his uh, of, of his folks, of his troops. So uh, he was a he had a very good sense of humor. Um, he uh, he had an ego, but of course the media and everybody else fed that ego. So um, you know his head swelled many you know several times. Uh, but he also was very humble. I saw him be be very humble. You know, quick example of that is uh, we were going to visit uh, the head of state for um, I think it was Oman, and uh, he. Somebody told him that it would be a good idea for him to dress in traditional o Omani garb, you know, the robe and the and the whole thing, and he did. And he came out of his hotel room, and I had a you know I, I had a hard time uh, keeping from from laughing. And and he looked at me, and we got into the elevator, and it was just he and I in the elevator. And he said, "Do I really look as foolish as I feel?" And I said, "Hey, you know, you're rocking it, sir. You know." So uh, it, but but he was, um, you know, he's just that kind of guy that. Uh, uh, that we would have some very personal moments and uh, I got to know him as, as a, as a human being, which was wonderful for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. It's something that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say only the people in his inner circle would know and his family and friends. Uh, and I understand I, I do my research before I talk to people. Uh, there was a time where you had split up a convoy, uh, with Dan Quayle and himself. And, uh, he, he gave you the old army, uh, yeah. motivational speech, we'll call it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he, uh, he tore me up. So, so as my position as the, uh, you know, there's a vernacular in the in personal security business and, and, and my, uh, my title when we were doing the personal security thing was I was the PSO as a personal security officer. So in that position, I sat in the right front seat of the vehicle that he was in and he sat directly behind me. And, uh, uh, if, if an event such as an attack or something took place, my job was to jump over the seat and cover him with my body and, you know, sacrifice my body for his kind of thing. Um, but yeah, there was, there was a, uh, we were doing a motorcade. The, the president was also in country, uh, and had gone to the, the King's house and the King's palace. And, uh, we were with, uh, vice president Quayle in a, in a motorcade. And so, I had coordinated with the Secret Service, who was in charge of the vice president, of course, that at a certain location, we were going to uh, uh, purposely split the motorcade up because we figured it might be harder for the enemy to hit us if we were two separate motorcades. Um, and, you know, they can, the old shell game, right? Who are they going to who are they going to hit? So we heard we hit a, a, a checkpoint that we had agreed upon and uh Vice President Quayle's motorcade went one way and we, we went the other way. And my mistake was that I had forgotten to tell General Schwarzkopf that that was going to happen. So when he saw, you know, Vice President Quayle take a left and we took a right. Now, he's a big man. Uh, you know, he was he was 6'3 or 6'4, probably about uh, 230, you know, 
big guy. And he reached around the front seat and grabbed a hold of the seat and started pulling me into the back seat with him, screaming at me about, you know, with profanities, what did you just do? Well, we're going to lose him. We don't, you know, and I, I had to assure him, sir, we, you know, I've worked this out with the Secret Service. We know where we're going. We're going to meet at the same place. And sure enough, you know, he sweated it out for the next 10 minutes. But sure enough, we got to the to the palace at this at the, another checkpoint and we just merged right into their motorcade seamlessly and uh he said you know the old uh uh clint eastwood line he said greg do you feel lucky today and i said yes sir i do so uh it worked out well and you know but that's he used to scream at me often but he was one of those guys that he would scream at me and then uh, he'd invite me into his hotel room for for you know a sandwich or something so he was one of those guys that he got angry really quick. He was quick to, quick to anger, but he didn't hold grudges. I mean, I saw him, I saw him put a three-star general at the position of attention in front of his desk and scream at him. And, uh, you know, so he, he didn't pull any punches. If he was, if he wanted to vent his anger at you, he would do that. And, and I was on the receiving end of that several times. Um, once or twice for good reason, maybe, but, you know, otherwise it was, things I had just forgotten to tell him we were going to end up doing and, and he caught him by surprise. Now it's, it seems like that would be a, a pinnacle of a lot of people's careers, but I mean, that was still, I, I, we'll say mid career for you. It wasn't early on. I mean, like we yeah, just, no, I was a captain. Yeah, yeah. I was a brand so, new captain. So, <laughs> you know, I was in my, uh, you know, early thirties. Okay. Um, so yeah, it was a, uh, it, it was a heck of a, of a, I don't know, a career move for me, not, not that I intended it to be that way, but you know, the biggest reward for me was I got to do and see so many different things that certainly an air force officer, you know, doesn't get to see and do. For example, I landed uh, in a jet on an aircraft carrier with, uh, with general Schwarzkopf, you know, and that was, it was a three seater. And uh, I forget what, what model was a jet uh, Navy jet, but uh, you know, landing on an aircraft carrier for an air force officer is kind of a rare experience. So, uh, you know, we went from like, you know, 300 miles an hour to zero in, you know, 0.1 seconds when we hit that, uh, hit that, uh, that line that they stretch across the deck. So, that, you know, it's very interesting. So, I mean, just, it was just a tremendous experience uh, for me and, uh, you know, getting to know the general and, and seeing him in all of his glory. Uh, you know, I've got so many stories to tell. Actually, somebody approached me after um, I came back from the Gulf War and uh, wanted to be a ghostwriter and wanted me to to write a book. So uh, General Schwarzkopf's nickname, as you probably can remember, was the bear. Um, okay. Everybody, right. he had gotten that nickname, I guess, at West Point or something. He played football there and they called him the bear. So that that moniker kind of followed him throughout his career. And uh, the title of the book that this writer had uh, suggested was going to be uh the bear claw or the claw of the bear or something like that because we, you know, we were the ones that were protecting him. So, uh, but needless to say, I, I, I didn't do that. I didn't think it was would be respectful to the general that he wanted a kind of a tell all book, oh, okay. uh, some of the experiences and so forth. And, you know, I wasn't going to do that. I had too much respect for the general, but um, yeah. So there was a, there was a recognition that I probably had seen and heard a, a lot of things. You know, I was, I was privy to his most private conversations with the president uh, with the, uh, uh, General Powell, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the time, um, because I was with him, like I said, every moment that he was awake. So whenever he had conference calls with them or when he, whenever he had personal meetings with, you know, the president or the vice president or, or whomever, 
where the heads of states of all the 18 countries that comprise the Central Command AOR, I was there. So, you know, I, I get to be privy to a lot of things. I mean, at the peace talks, um, I don't know if you want to, if, if this is a, sort of a, a, a story you don't want to hear real quick, but so sure, yeah. when we were getting ready to meet the Iraqis um, on the border between uh, Iraq and Saudi Arabia, uh, we, I sent a team forward to do what we call the advance work, scope it out, see, know what was going on. Well, it was that, that piece of land was still in enemy hands. And uh, so there was a battle uh, to take that, take that uh, border town uh, where the, where the Iraqis still had people. And so there was a, there was a, they sent in some army people and, and our folks and uh, laid waste to that particular uh, facility. And so um, I was back at the headquarters with a general and I got a report saying that the Saudi intelligence uh, service had uh, had captured some prisoners and uh, during interrogation they said it was going to be an assassination attempt on on General Schwarzkopf when he hit this uh, town where the battle had been. Uh, so I, I went in to brief him. I said, sir, we've got a report. You know, there's going to be an assassination attempt. And I was standing behind him and he was sitting at his desk and he spun around in his chair and had his... Uh, had his glasses, reading glasses on any of his nose, and he looked up at me over them and he said, you're not going to let that happen to me, are you? And I said, no, sir. And uh, so he said, when he looked at me and he said, if any one of them looked at me cross-eyed, I want you to kill him. I said, yes, sir, we'll do that. So so uh, the next day uh, we flew in. We Normally we would do a, a three-ship formation, three Blackhawks. Um, again, we play the shell game, right? Is Which Blackhawk is he in? And I would have team members in in uh, all of the all of the birds. And so, I when we got over the uh, the area where the peace stocks were going to be, um, I had one of the birds land, and I had my guys uh, quickly scouted out to make sure there weren't any threats or whatever. And uh, I got a radio call from the guys who were on the ground. I said, "Sir, there's enemy dead and wounded all over the battlefield." And I said, "Well, uh, make sure they're not a threat to us." So they, they called me a little while later and said, "Okay, the area's secure." So we landed. And uh, um, we took the general to an area, a safe area that we had set up and so forth. And so um, that was going on. And then uh, we heard from our, from our recon people that there were Iraqi tanks inbound to this location. And uh, we're like, what, you know, what the hell's going on here? So it turns out that the Iraqi delegation who was going to come and, and uh, do the peace talks came in uh, their most um, modern, at their time, T-74 tanks. And um, so the general gave me orders. He said, tell them they cannot bring their tanks here. They're going to have to unask their tanks before they get here. So we sent that order out. Long story short, we had guys in, in, uh, in Humvees go pick them up and bring them in. And as they were inbound to the place where we were going to do the peace talks, the general said, I want you to make sure that, uh, you know, they don't have anything on them. I said, yeah, yes, sir. We've got that covered, you know. And he said, remember, there's going to be an assassination attempt. I said, yes, sir. So I got my guys together and I said, when they get here, uh, let's make sure we search them well and uh, but be be courteous because remember uh, these officers are going to be surrendering their country so we have to be respectful for that. We took them into a separate tent. We did a strip search, uh, make sure that they, they didn't have any uh, weapons or whatever. And I reported back to the general, hey, they're not they're not carrying any weapons, so you're good. And he said, well, if any of them reaches across the table, I said, yes, sir, don't worry about it. So I put a uh, they had a X number of uh, Iraqi officers that came as part of the delegation. I put a, uh, a member of the team next to each one of them with a rifle, and I said, "Hey, you know, if any of them even makes a makes a move, I mean, you got to do what you got to do." So, and I stood behind the general, and so I was able to do 
some of the translations um, for him during the peace talks because he would double check with me that the Iraqis had brought a English speaker with them. So the Iraqis would say something and then the translator would translate and the general would turn around, look at me and he goes, is that really what he said? And I, you know, I'd say, yes, sir, that's what he said. So it worked out uh, very, uh, very well and was very interesting. And needless to say, there were no assassination attempts during those peace talks. How did the next, I guess we'll call it 15 years or so of your your career did you just kind of look back at the good old days and just keep trudging forward or uh what other uh, assignments did you get after uh schwarzkopf well everything that i did after that paled in comparison right i mean that 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 was the pinnacle of my career and and uh you know it happened early on uh so when i left um when i got back to to florida after the gulf war um, i actually stayed with general schwarzkopf until he retired and then when he retired, I took over the same duties for his uh, successor, who was a Marine four-star. Uh, General Hoare was his name, H-O-A-R. And uh, I stayed with General Hoare f- uh, for another uh, couple of years uh, in that in that same position. And, uh, you know, we, we did similar things, but they weren't in, you know, hostile conditions. So um, uh, it wasn't as exciting. And then uh, I ended up um, separating. Actually, I retired. I mean, I uh, uh, resigned my regular commission and took a reserve commission as a as a captain, and uh, I ended up being a law enforcement officer. I became a state trooper in Florida. Um, I did that for a couple of years. Then I worked for the Tampa Police Department for uh, a few years, and then in in uh, 1996, um, I got a uh, I got a, a request from the government to return to active duty. So I was involuntarily returned to active duty. I, in retrospect, it was a good move. So 1996, I went back. Uh, I was an Arabic linguist, as I told you, and I had uh, a lot of experience in the CENCOM AOR, especially doing counterterrorism work. And that was about the time that Al-Qaeda was uh, raising their ugly heads. Um, so they wanted to bring people back on board that, that had some experience fighting that target set. So I went back on duty and uh, I got promoted to major a short time after that. Uh, I was at Central Command for, for several years. Um, I was actually the, um, the chief of the counterintelligence division at Central Command for, for a few years. And then uh, I ended up going over to uh, Special Operations Command as a counterintelligence officer over there, deployed. Um, while I was there to uh, the uh, invasion of Afghanistan. And then uh, shortly after that, I went uh, VFR direct to, um, to Iraq for the invasion of Iraq. So, um, you know, I had some, I still had a few uh, interesting assignments and, and jobs. Uh, and then I ultimately retired after, uh, uh, in, in 2005, my last, my last uh, position, I was the chief of, of a division at the Defense Intelligence Agency. I'd been, uh, detached from the Air Force on loan to Defense Intelligence Agency to run a division that was actually doing uh, counter narcotics operations in South America. So that was a that was an interesting assignment as well. And I, I said, as I said, I retired in 2005. Yeah, that is anything but a typical Air Force career. Uh, right. I, always, I always say, you know, if you I, I would never disparage anyone's service. Um, I just personally, I wouldn't have been able to do a support job. I wouldn't have been able to. I mean, I I, I understand the you know the need to serve and and that people have and you do the job that they they give you. So so yeah, I mean, I it, I guess you call it a career 
less than ordinary, but that's, that's, um, that's a fantastic story. You should write a book, but you know, don't focus it on, I mean, obviously talk about Schwarzkopf, but, um, focus it on the, the career. Cause it's very interesting. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I have a question cause we deal a lot with, so irreverent warriors deals a lot with veteran mental health and, and, um, we find that one of the biggest stumbling points that people have is that moment they get out of the, the military and they look back on, I mean, again, my knowledge base is only on the war on terror, but, you know, for myself, I can say, you know, a year ago I was flying combat missions in Afghanistan and now I'm here and it's quiet and I'm in a civilian world again. And I've, that, that's been beaten out of me. I don't know how to communicate with that. How did you, you've had a few transitions, but let's go back to when you became a police officer uh, or a state trooper. Um, A lot of guys go that route. They go police, they might go fire, they might go personal security or um, private security. Did you go into law enforcement because it's what you knew? And were you trying to get that, that camaraderie of being in the military again? All of that. So uh, I think if you talk to law enforcement people at any level, state, federal, local, whatever, uh, you know, there's a common adage, you know, it's in your blood. And and I think that's exactly what happened to me. It was uh, something I enjoyed doing. Um, So when I when I got out of the Air Force and and so I had lined this, I had lined up something before I decided to to make the move out. But for me, it was a natural transition from the military to law enforcement, not only because I enjoyed the work, but as you said, there's a certain level of camaraderie uh, in in the uh, in law enforcement as there was in the military, and that certainly uh, was true for the for the agencies that I worked for, and it was a a need that I had, and uh, uh, it was met. So yeah, I think for all those things you just articulated, that's why I made the move to law enforcement. Okay. Uh, when you went back to college, the, your first, <laughs> it's yeah. tricky here, your first separation when you went back to college, yeah. Um, yeah. how was that in dealing with, because a lot of our guys oh, and myself God. included, yeah, you're dealing with, with college kids who, yeah. who have no, yeah, how did you, how did you make yeah. that transition? Yeah, that, that was, uh, that was not easy. So I, I, uh, my first uh, break from the military, if you will, was in 1982. So I served from 76 to 82 as as an enlisted person, right? So um, I did my first four years, as I mentioned, as a security police or security forces, they call them now. And then uh, I was recruited by uh, the Office of Special Investigations when I was a staff sergeant after four years of service. So I spent the next two years as an enlisted agent for, for OSI. In 82, I separated because uh, uh, I wanted I felt a need to further my career. So, I mean, my education. So I got out and uh, went to school uh, part-time and worked as a police officer full-time in New Hampshire, where I came from. And uh, so I had, I had two strikes against me, I guess you could say when I was, when I was going to school part-time. So I would go in uniform because my boss felt it important to have a, to have a good education. So he allowed me to take my, uh, my police radio with me and I would go to class in uniform. And so uh, I was not only a military vet, but I was also a police officer. So, um, you know, you can imagine, you know, the, the, uh, the college age kids looking at this guy who at the time I was uh, like 20, uh, 24, something like that. So I was a little bit older than, than, uh, you know, most of the kids in the class. And not only that, but I was, a you know, I had been in the military and I was a cop and, 
Uh, yeah, it was difficult. Um, and even though I was studying criminal justice, um, you know, people, some people go into to the criminal justice class because they're then going to study law afterwards and they want to know how the cops do their thing, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I had a lot of liberals and, and uh, you know, wise-ass kids in the class, but I toughed it out and, and I would, you know, I was one of those uh, dissenting voices in the class when, uh, you know, a controversial topic would, would come up, you know, I'd take, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a certain stance and they'd take a different stance and we'd kind of debate it and so on and so forth. But it was, it was a challenge, but I got through it and it, it paid off in the long run. The good old days when debate was not only welcome, but um, <laughs> it was tolerated. Yes. Um, so then uh, I, I guess we kind of jumped around there, but then your most recent separation in yep. 05, um, yep. how did that one go? Now you're a little bit older. Your kids are, yeah. I assume, a little bit older. Yeah, You've yeah. got a lot of time behind you. Um, right. How did that one go? Yeah, it it uh, it went it went well. I ended up uh, uh, when I retired in uh, 05, uh, I ended up going back into law enforcement again. I actually became a detective uh, for a sheriff's office here in uh, in Florida um, because of my my background and training and so forth. They uh, they took me right out of the military, made me a detective, and put me in charge of criminal intelligence for their agency. And so uh, it was it was it was an interesting thing. Uh, the problem was I couldn't make any money doing it, so I ended up leaving that and and uh, going into more more lucrative line of business not that i didn't like to work it was just that at that point in my my life um i wanted to do something to pay it a little bit more than uh, than what i what they were offering so yeah but every, everything else went well i had uh, my my first wife had passed away in uh, 2003 just before the uh, invasion of afghanistan and uh uh by 2005 um i had met uh, another woman and we were, we were, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a committed relationship, I ended up marrying her in 2006. But uh, yeah, so there was, you know, things going on there in my personal life and uh, the transition ended up, um, you know, being, being fairly smooth. I mean, I missed, I missed the military every day. Um, I work in a position now where I work, uh, I, I work at headquarters, uh, U.S. Central Command at McDill Air Force Base. So I'm around, military people every day and that's that's good for me and uh you know interacting with them and, and doing uh things that that i know for the good of the country so um yeah I'm, I'm happy as as things are right now what do you uh what do you see as from your experience uh and i like to ask guys who've, who've had such a, a wider range or uh, wide array of experiences in the military what was the biggest change in the culture of the military from, uh, let's just say, the Gulf War era uh, to the the modern GWAT era? Uh, I, you know, I have seen uh, a change, and um, let me see if I can be kind here. Uh, it, it, you know, my wife and I, who's also retired from the Air Force, by the way, uh, we often comment that. Uh, you know, it's not our Air Force anymore. And, and things have, have changed, you know, quite a bit. I mean, I guess the, the, the way, you know, if you're talking about, you know, the elite units, you know, because it's not at, uh, at McDill, we also have headquarters for special operations command. So, mm -hmm. so we see, uh, we see all of the uh, uh, folks from the elite units there as well. And I guess, you know, those people who are serving in those units probably haven't changed much there. They go in for, you know, a certain reason. And, uh, but some of the other kids that were are young 
people that we're seeing now in uniform uh, certainly don't have the same attitude or uh, maybe the same mindset or, or work ethic that uh, I think was probably prevalent when uh, when you were in for sure and 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 throughout my earlier career. So it's it's a little disappointing sometimes, um, but I guess probably uh, you know soldiers from World War II said the same thing about people you know in the in the in the 60s you know they were going in the military. So I guess that's just an evolution, but uh, it, it's it's somewhat disappointing. I, yeah, we called it at the time. It, it was the push to make it a kinder, gentler Air Force. Yes, um, yes. And and yeah, we ran into that, especially you know if we were staying at um, Ali Asalem Air Base in in Kuwait or or Balad. Some of these people that never they they didn't know what the mission was. Their mission was my mission is to uh, make sure the kitchen's clean, and that's the mission of the base because that's my mission. And that and it's like no 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 no. This is yeah. all about fighting a war, right? You got to see a bigger and, picture, yeah. Yeah, and I might have brought this up on the show before, so I don't want to sound redundant. Is you know, even now I'm 42, and I and I look back and I go, you know, I I go to my medical office and it's just quiet, and you know, I hear birds chirping, and I long for the days of a little bit of excitement. And I was telling my friend who visited me, we we both uh, were in the same squadron back in Iraq, and he said. He said, you're 42. Do you think you would be doing anything but sitting at a desk and writing OPRs and metal paperwork? <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's, you know, I never really considered that, that my operational days were probably over 10 years ago. <laughs> he gave you a little sanity check there, huh? Yeah. yeah. And then I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, it made me feel a lot better because I never, I, in my mind, I would still be in operations. I would still be, right. you know. <laughs> right. But yeah, I guess we all get old. So tell me about your motorcycle club. Uh, this is re relatively new, I would assume, because uh, I think you'd mentioned that it's something new uh, since we spoke last. Well, well, thank you for uh, for bringing it up, and and uh, uh, I I would love to talk about them real quick. So I I joined this club back in the uh, early July timeframe, and uh, what attracted me to them is, you know, I've I've been an avid motorcyclist for a long time. So not only do they, uh, you know, love to ride motorcycles and all of that, but uh, more importantly, they are a veteran service organization and um, they are focused on their big, big picture mission is, you know, trying to prevent the 22 suicides a day that that uh, your organization is also uh, trying to work with. And and but little picture stuff, uh, all of the. Uh, all of the members of the club are trained um, in suicide prevention counseling. Uh, so um, recently, the, the president of the club was contacted uh, on the hotline that we have, and uh, there was a, a veteran in the Tampa Bay area who was, you know, contemplating suicide. And so the it was actually like four o'clock in the morning, and so the president of the club uh, actually was on the phone with the guy for like four hours and talked him down, and uh, and everything ended well. So it's everything from that kind of thing to last week, uh, there was a the, the wife of a Vietnam vet who has since uh, passed away. And she's living in a, in a humble, small trailer here in the Tampa Bay area. And her roof, um, I mean, her air conditioner went out and uh, she had no air conditioning. And we heard about it. And uh, we actually were able to uh, work with a local uh, HVAC company and uh, they provided the unit and uh, we went over and, and installed it in her trailer and 
you know, tried to help her out and give, and when we were over there, we realized that she has a very hard time walking. She's elderly. Um, so we're, we're going to put new rails on her, uh, stairs that go up to her trailer and they're going to put a new roof on it. And so we, we try to do those kinds of things to make a little bit of a difference, uh, in people's lives. And we do it by, by donations. Part of the things that we do when we're riding our motorcycles is we'll have, uh, fundraising events. We'll have, you know, burgers and dogs and live bands and people come and they give a donation, they get a beer and a burger and, you know, we make a few bucks doing that, you know, doing that kind of stuff. So it's a great bunch of guys are all, uh, they're all veterans. Uh, I'm the only air force guy, but uh, I added some class to the club when I joined. So that's good. And uh, yeah, I take a lot of ribbing um, from the other guys cause they're, you know, army guys or a Navy guy or whatever. But anyway, it doesn't matter what service you are. We're all vets. Right. So at the end yeah. of the day, uh, that's all that matters. And so it's a, it's a great organization. It scratches my itch as far as uh, riding a motorcycle all the time. And uh, then we, the, uh, you know, the added plus of, uh, uh, you know, vets helping vets kind of thing. So thank you for letting me plug it. I'm not a member yet. I'm still a prospect, which means uh -oh. process and, you know, whatever. But actually, uh, before this interview, um, I talked to the president of the club, uh, who's a, a disabled baby uh, special warfare vet. And uh, I said, hey, it might come up during the interview to mind if I, I'm just a prospect. Do you mind if I uh, talk about it? He said, yeah, do what you got to do. So, um, yeah. So, actually, thank you very much for letting me talk about it. But it's a, it's a wonderful organization, and, and I'm, hopefully one day I'll be a, a full patch member of the club. What, what's the name of the organization? The Wretched Few. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm friends with a bunch of guys out here uh, in the Outlaws. I think that's... I might be totally butchering that. That could be a one percent group. I, I don't remember the name of their group. Yeah. Sorry, it, it's a uh, hacker is the uh, one of the officers of the club. But um, yeah, it, they do a lot of a lot of good work. Do you do you find? I guess I'll rephrase that. Do veterans owe a service to other veterans? Meaning, is it our duty to watch each other's back uh, after we're out? <sighs> I don't know if it's a duty uh, per se, but it's certainly a strong calling. Um, you know, we, we have a we have a patch that we wear on our vest that says we are our brother's keeper. And, uh, you know, we sincerely believe that we have, you know, a common core of experiences for the most part. Um, you know, we, we we all signed on a dotted line, you know, willing to give our lives for our country, you know, a blank check, basically. Um, We've all had, you know, experiences. Most of us have traveled abroad, you know, and had even other different, even greater experiences. So we have that common bond. And I think that uh, uh, it's almost a calling for, for many vets that they want to, not only they want to give back to their communities, because obviously you went in the military for a reason. And oftentimes it's because you had a, um, a desire to, to be part of something bigger than you and, and and serve your community and your country. So that's part of it. I think we all and, and that and and even if you didn't have that when you enlisted or, or became an officer, it grows in you when you're serving, right? So they kind of instill that in you that you know you're you're part of something bigger. Um, you have a you have a duty to perform, and so I think that sticks with you even when you leave the service, leave the military mm -hmm. service. And so for a lot of us, it's a uh, it, it's something that it, that's ingrained and uh, not that we wouldn't help out the average Joe if, uh, you know, if, if something happened, but 
I, I think there's a stronger, stronger feeling of obligation or duty, as you called it, to help other vets because we have that common background, you know, basically a common mindset, common set of values, you know, morals and that kind of thing. So I, I think that's what drives a lot of vets, certainly in my motorcycle club, to uh, to do what they do to to uh, help other vets. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's a, an idea that, that you don't make a service member, you find a service member, you know, where, where somebody, it's something you're born with. I, I guess you can fake it and join and, and yeah, you know, <laughs> maybe you'll have a career with that, but most people uh, it, it's, it's a calling and it's, it's, it doesn't leave you. You're right. When you're out, I mean, it's what I do 40, I'm a PA for 40 hours a week. And then the other 40 hours a week, I'm doing veteran advocacy because there's just uh that calling, that camaraderie and that, that, uh, common bond that we share that really, unless you've put your hand up, you can't understand. I mean, maybe firefighters, law enforcement, uh, EMS would understand, but it's, it's a rare group of people. And, and personally, I feel that if you're, if you're a veteran, um, and you're not giving back to your other veterans, ugh, I don't know, you got to reexamine what you're doing. Cause I mean, it's free country, but you know, that's just my opinion. You know what they say about opinions. <laughs> yeah. And, and so many, so many people who, who uh, leave military service don't make a smooth transition, you know, no, for whatever no, reason, no. you know, they, they were, they were combat, you know, vets or whatever. And so many of the people that we deal with here, even just in the Tampa Bay area are, are suffering from uh, injuries that you can't see, right. It's PTSD and, 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 uh, or maybe they were victims of a traumatic brain injury or, or whatever. And so there's so many of those people walking around that you would look at them and go, oh, yeah, he's a vet, but I guess he was OK. Well, no, they're not all OK. And so uh, we meet a lot of those people. We deal with a lot of them. And, and uh, it's very humbling to be able to, to do something for them. Sure. Yeah. T TBI is uh, close to my heart. There's a lot of people out there that uh, have it and don't even realize it. You know, the, the constant, uh, you know, concussions of either just the, the nature of their job and, and people think TBI, oh, I was in a IED and I lost consciousness for an hour. No, it, it can be a, a cumulative effect of manning a 50 cal for, you know, 15 years of your life. So, um, yeah, that's a tricky one. Uh, what do you think are some of the key differences between those who participate in self-destructive behaviors like isolation, drug and alcohol use, suicide attempts versus those who approach the transition with more positive um, uh, activities like joining a motorcycle gang or something? Where, where's that disconnect? Well, that's that's a tough question, but I, but I think uh, so many people, veterans have served and they get out and they don't necessarily have a a uh, coherent plan of what they're going to do when they get out. And, uh, you know, for example, and I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate, you know, my, my brothers and sisters who served in the army or the, or the Marine Corps or whatever, but a lot of those people go in and they're a mortarman or they're a, uh, you know, some other combat arms uh, job. And then uh, they get out and they realize there aren't a lot of mortarman jobs in the civilian world, you know, I mean, so, so then they have a hard time trying to relate the skills that they learned as, you know, a, a combat arms person to the civilian world. And maybe that transition, uh, transition doesn't go well. Or they can't find, a, um, you know, a, a position that, that pays well enough based on what they did. You know, so, for example, uh, uh, I, I know a, a person who's an Army vet. And in the, in the Army, he was an uh, artilleryman. An NCO. He retired as a as an E7, and so he's trying to find work. 
And so he reached out to me and asked me for some help trying to find a job. And he's like, I, you know, I was an artilleryman, you know, there's not much calling for that in the civilian world. And so I, you know, I explained to him, look, talk about your leadership and training, you know, skills, your leadership and management skills that you had as a senior NCO. Um, so he's actually working on his resume. He's going to send it. And I said, don't forget about the additional duties. Maybe you, you were the security manager, you were this or you were that. Um, you know, so there's some value to that in the civilian world if you write it up properly. You don't have to concentrate on the fact that you used to pull the lanyard on a on a, an artillery piece and launch, you know, Volkswagens, you know, five miles to kill the enemy. That's you're right. There's not much call for that in the civilian world, but there's so many other skills um, that you that you pick up in the military that do have value in the civilian world. It's just a matter of developing those or articulating those, and then you know somebody's going to find value in that. So I'm working with him right now on his resume as we speak. I mean, it was something that came up earlier this week, and I said, hey, you know, do a resume, you know, focus on these areas, and then send me the resume, and I'll help you edit it because I know at this point in my life what a hiring manager is looking for in the civilian world, right? So I can help you write to that. I mean, you don't want him to waste his, his uh, you know, his career in the Army, you know, retiring as a senior NCO and not be able to get any work out here. You know, there's, there's work to be had. He, he has skills and, and uh, things that he developed during his Army career that have value in a civilian world. It's just a matter of recognizing that and articulating that and then, you know, putting it into civilian speak so that, you know, your hiring manager from, you know, whatever company it is has, you know, can can relate to what it is he did in the military. So, um, yeah, not everybody uh, transitions well. So that's another thing that that I think is something that we, you and I, and maybe some other uh, vets who, who may, maybe landed a little bit more softly when we get out, um, you know, have an opportunity to, to help our fellow veterans and, and, you know, make sure that they make the transition uh, properly and, and are getting a, you know, decent paying position in the outside world. Sure. And, and I think one of the big takeaways too is, is, and I don't know if the army or if the, all the services, any of the services do this, but you know, from day one, the day you, you walk in, in your civilian clothes and put your hands up, you should realize that the last day is going to be coming. You're, you're at this point, the timer has started and it could be next year. I had a friend who shattered his, his femur in boot camp, So, I mean, it can happen next yeah. week. <laughs> Or it can happen in, you know, 15 years and, and you have to be prepared for that. And I, and I hope, you know, I, I like to think there's people smarter than me that are, are paying attention to what's going on in the veteran community and, and coming up with, with decent ways. And I also, it makes me proud to be a veteran to know all these different VSOs out there. I mean, that's one of the biggest things I've taken away from, from doing a podcast is it, it, there's, if you can't find a VSO, it's because you haven't looked. I mean, there's so many groups out there that are, that are doing, um, uh, doing such great work. I'm looking right now as I speak, I'm looking on my chart to see what, because I'm going to recruit you to do a Silkies hike. <laughs> you know what Silkies are, right? Ranger panties. You worked with some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some I know. yeah. So we, basically, we laugh about that right now as with some of the guys are talking about, I'm going to wear my Silkies on one of these rides. And we're like, yeah, you better not. <laughs> it's a badge of honor. You should see us. I mean, it's, it's a little jarring to see that much man thigh with a bunch yeah, of middle-aged yeah, yeah. dudes, but uh, middle-aged dudes, I haven't seen the sun in a while. Uh, right. There's one in Key West on December 12th. That's a little, I mean, that's still a drive for you. And then there's also one up in um, uh, Savannah, Georgia on the 19th. I think Savannah and Key West would be the two closest places. I thought there'd be one in Fort Lauderdale. I don't know. I, I don't see one on here. So 
Um, well, send me you, the info because uh, th that would be something that we we might ride to. You oh know? yeah, uh, yeah, Godana, yeah. Godana's a, a group and and uh, I represent you know the club and, and the good works that we do and participate in this uh, in this in, in one of these events you're talking about. Awesome. Yeah, yeah and that's that's what Please we do. do. We all get together. In fact, this organization, Reverend Warriors, is how I know that that motorcycle organization. I only know them because of my neighbor who's a Marine. And it's just we all get connected. And what's kind of cool is uh, the Marine neighbor that I have, he, he owns a bar, right? They don't serve food. Well, they just recently transitioned over to serving food, but he was closed down for the last four months. And the motorcycle club got together and uh, did a, a poker run and raised money for him. So, I mean, it's, it's all these little connections that we make that end up changing people's lives. So and you, you might be amazed at how many people who ride motorcycles are veterans. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's just amazing. Uh, we'll, we'll have an event and, you know, we'll put a, we'll put some of our guys out in a parking lot to greet people when they park their bikes. And, uh, you know, we, we just ask out of a matter of course, are you a veteran? And, it's amazing. Probably uh, seventy percent of the people who pull up on their motorcycles will say, "Yeah, I'm a vet." Yeah. Uh, so it's it's amazing. So they call it they call it wind therapy, from what I understand. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a cool term. All right. Uh, you know, it was nice hearing the the New Hampshire accent. You probably don't hear it, but I I definitely <laughs> do because I'm in North Carolina. Some I words. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was great yeah. talking to you. Um, I'll keep here. in touch. I'll keep in touch. Please and do. We'll, we'll definitely meet up at some point because. I'm traveling all over for this group and, and uh, maybe I'll make it down to Florida. Savannah. I don't know. We'll see, but um, we're not going anywhere. You know, so both, uh, both Key West and Savannah are wonderful cities. I'm very familiar with both of them. Um, yeah. So please send me the info and that's, that's something we, we might want to go to. Awesome. Awesome. Good. All right. Good all luck. right. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Set the